Hi, it's Mark Bittman. Welcome to Food. As always, you can get in touch with us at food at markbittman.com. And we'd love to hear from you, whether with questions, answers, suggestions, what have you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm going to get right into the episode today because... We have an unusual, special, and super interesting guest, and we went quite long, and I want to give you an opportunity to hear as much of this interview as we can squeeze into the podcast. So, I'm with Melissa, and we are joined by Amitav Ghosh, the author who is originally from India. He now lives in Brooklyn, but is best known for his complex and wonderful fiction. In the last few years, he's generated two intriguing and original nonfiction works. And all of his writing is worth discussing, but his latest book, which is called The Nutmeg's Curse, Parables for a Planet in Crisis, is especially deserving of our attention because it focuses on food, colonialism, and the climate crisis, especially following the Great Derangement. It's a powerful, powerful book. We get into all of this in our interview, which is dominated by Amitav's enviable depth of knowledge on just about every topic we brought up. So, here are Amitav Ghosh, Melissa McCart, and me. Before we look at the biggest picture, let's start with the recent book, which is called Nutmeg's Curse, Parables for a Planet in Crisis. And in it, you look at nutmeg as a parable for the climate crisis and more. And you talk about how human history has always been entangled with once exotic things like spices, tea, sugar, to name a few. Can you just run through this theme a little bit? Sure. The early period of colonization in Asia, especially, 
uh, was all about, uh, uh, especially these commodities, uh, spices, uh, you know. I mean, it sounds kind of weird to think about it because, you know, spices have become so devalued today that we take them completely for granted. I mean, it always strikes me, uh, you know, you go to a Italian restaurant and they serve you, um, you know, pasta, olio e pepe, and they'll tell you about where the olive oil comes from, but they'll they, they don't even mention the pepper, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is, after all, <laughs> what gives the dish its flavor. Uh, you know, so all that locavorism doesn't doesn't apply to spices at all. It's a curious thing. But uh, so, uh, you know, at, at that early period of uh, of conquest in uh, in Asia is entirely around these things. It's around nutmegs, it's cloves. Uh, and nutmegs and cloves uh, grow in very uh, remote parts uh, of, of the world. You know, I mean, they were endemic to the Malaccas. Uh, to this, uh, to a, a small archipelago around Ternate, uh, that was closed, and nutmegs grew only in the, the southern Malaccas around the Banda Islands, which are even more remote. So basically, uh, uh, you know, the Dutch once they became dominant, uh, just decided, uh, you know, to go to the Banda Islands and kill off all the Bandanese, kill off and enslave. I mean, it's a ghastly story. I mean, if you think about it. Uh, this uh, this tree was one of uh, nature's great gifts. You know, it was a gift of these volcanic soils and uh, these unbelievable forests, uh, which produced such extraordinary rarities of many kinds. Uh, and it made the Bandanese prosperous. I mean, for centuries, people would uh, travel all the way to the Banda Islands uh, to shop for uh, nutmegs. And the Bandanese themselves became very ex expert traders. And they would go out, uh, you know, to sell their to sell their spices. But ultimately, this great blessing became a curse, and they were literally exterminated. You know, uh, it's uh, it's an incredibly sad story if you think about it. But really, uh, they were the earliest victims of the resource curse, and I think that's what uh, the planetary crisis of today is. Uh, you know, it's the resource curse which has been globalized. Uh, and it's doing to the whole world now what it once did to these indigenous peoples. If you have resources, they will be exploited. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it's not just nutmeg that we can apply this to, but it's a collection of spices that have this sort of, that's something that has become commonplace in our cooking, but it's essentially has a story that's very far from the Western world. Would you say, or could you have used an, a different spice for this? But there was a whole suite of spices. You know, there was a cinnamon, there, there was nutmeg, there was uh, um, pepper. Most of all, uh, you know, pepper was the biggest single commodity of this trade. Uh, but the pepper grew in uh, the Malabar region, uh, that is in southern India. And actually, the Dutch tried to corner uh, the pepper market as well. And in doing that, they introduced another commodity uh, into international trade, which became actually more important than all these others put together. And that was opium. Uh, through the 19th century, you know, uh, opium was what sustained the British Empire and the Dutch Empire. They began to grow opium in India on a large scale. And uh, all this opium was taken to Southeast Asia and China and created uh, a huge addiction problem. It also created an enormous geopolitical problem. And in fact, it's very much with us to this day, all these problems. 
Because, you know, we always think of the Chinese state as being something uh, invented in this particular form uh, by the Communist Party. But in fact, the Chinese state in, in this specific form uh, emerges out of its struggles to, uh, to, uh, to suppress opium. And that goes back long before the uh, Communist Party. So opium was completely fundamental to the way that the Chinese state emerged. And, uh, you know, its effects are very much with us today. I mean, opium drives so much policy now for the United States. So uh, it's a curious thing that we think of these uh, botanical entities as being kind of inert and that we control them. But if you look at the history of opium, and I've been doing a lot of that recently because I'm actually writing a book about it, it's very clear that, uh, you know, uh, you sense an intelligence uh, in the way that it actually, uh, in the way that it actually shapes history. Uh, you really sense an intelligence at work. I mean, right here in, uh, uh, in uh, New York City, it was one of the, uh, so much of the money that went into uh, the creation of New, New York City in the early 19th century uh, was opium money uh, brought back by, you know, uh, by a small, very small group of uh, opium traders, all Boston Brahmins, you know, <laughs> the, the Forbeses and Perkinses and Cabots, and of course, most of all, the Delanos, you know, uh, Warren Delano, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's grandfather was one of the biggest opium traders of all time. And this money was plowed into so many different industries across uh, across America. I mean, we can't even begin to compute how many of these, uh, how much of America is actually built uh, on opium money. So, you know, we think of these things as uh, these botanical entities as, uh, uh, you know, as something superannuated and that uh, human beings have control. But really, if you look at opium, it's, it's outsmarted all human efforts. Uh, it defeated basically uh, the United States Army, the most powerful army in the world, in Afghanistan. You know, uh, I mean, it was really a victory of opium. Uh, and uh, look at what the horror that the opioid epidemic has created within America. You know, and that's what China was living through in the uh, in the nineteenth century. You make it sound viral. I mean, you make it sound, if you were describing COVID, you would be saying similar things, I think. Yeah. Uh, you know, it is very strange. I mean, uh, long ago, I wrote a book about, uh, uh, you know, Ronald Ross, the scientist who first solved the malaria puzzle and got a kind of, uh, he got a Nobel Prize for it. Uh, and that was uh, in the early 20th century, 1906, I think it was. Uh, but the malaria continues to this day to elude everything that we do. And it's, you know, it's a tiny parasite. And, um, uh, you know, uh, even now with billions and billions of dollars being thrown behind it, there is no uh, vaccine that guarantees uh, immunity to malaria. Uh, there's, there's one uh, that, uh, you know, may provide some protection. But there's, and in fact, every attempt to suppress malaria has only made malaria stronger. Uh, so, you know, these tiny entities are very important. I mean, we'll never know about, uh, paras you know, what parasites are doing or thinking, or even if they're really, uh, I mean, are viruses alive? We don't know. But we do know now uh, that lots of botanical matter is uh, agentive, uh, that it creates patterns of history, 
that forests, for example, uh, you know, communicate at a at a at a very deep level, uh, and uh, you know, they do lots of things. Uh, they they are, in some sense, players in human history. So, especially with plant matter, I think uh, we just have to take uh, a different approach. We just have to think about it differently. Uh, there are beings out there who are thinking about stuff, you know, <laughs> and they've been here much longer than we have, and they've figured out lots of stuff. I often say that food food underlies everything, that the key to everything that yeah. humans do and the key to all human industry has been around food, and you can see everything through that lens. But in a way, you're saying, it's a little more general, you're saying it's plants that have been the determinant of history or... or uh, other, uh, be other beings, you know, aliens in a way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, plants are really, I mean, even more than animals, uh, plants are really the, the aliens that we've lived with and that we've always just taken for granted. But uh, we now see that they actually uh, wield uh, uncanny power. <laughs> I mean, it's a kind of scary thought, you know. Uh, plants are out there figuring out stuff. A big part of your book is a discussion of how the dynamics of climate change are rooted in the centuries-old geopolitical order that's constructed by colonialism. I'm wondering if you could talk about that thread with us. Sure. So, I mean, there are so many continuities that I don't even know uh, uh, really where to begin. But uh, the nutmeg was essentially uh, an early form of the commodity. It was valued not because of its properties, but simply because people wanted it. It was a luxury good, uh, you might say. So that's why it was desired. So, you know, European aristocracies, rich people, it was a way of showing people that you were rich if you had nutmegs. And, uh, you know, uh, much like uh, tulips, uh, nutmegs were incredibly expensive. I mean, a handful of nutmeg uh, in the 16th century in Europe uh, could buy you a house or a, um, or a ship. So this was an incredibly valuable commodity. And that's what launched uh, these geopolitical struggles, uh, you know, over, over nutmegs, uh, over pepper, uh, all these spices and so on. So what emerged at that particular point in time in the Indian Ocean region was a geopolitical structure that has literally continued to this day. Uh, that is, uh, the Portuguese invented this geopolitical structure. They, they created that were focused on various uh, uh, choke points uh, in the Indian Ocean. And those that remain the most important choke points to this day. The Straits of Hormuz, the Straits of Malacca. But the Straits of Hormuz now, uh, you know, channel 40% of the world's uh, uh, fossil fuels. Uh, the Straits of Malacca also absolutely essential fossil fuels around the world. And that's why uh, the United States has huge uh, geopolitical investments uh, across the Indian Ocean. Uh, you know, this whole sort of network of bases, uh, a floating uh, base. Uh, we see uh, with uh, absolutely incredible clarity the way in which uh, this uh, colonial uh, expansion in the 17th century really creates a theater for the geopolitical uh, struggles of today. Do you think that that sort of points to the birth of the climate crisis, or would you say that that's older? No, I think uh, it's certainly a very important part 
uh, of the climate crisis. Because, you know, Britain began to, I mean, a large part of the Industrial Revolution was actually uh, fueled by Britain's uh, armaments industry. You know, all the major technological breakthroughs happened within uh, British gun-making factories. Uh, and these were then sort of uh, passed on to the manufacturing of textiles and so on. But the key industry was gun-making and armaments. And the reason uh, why these were key is because Britain was fighting so many wars, I mean, in, uh, in North America and also uh, across the Indian Ocean. So one of the sort of key developments in this uh, is the invention of, you know, steam-powered gunboats. And steam-powered gunboats played uh, completely changed uh, the geopolitical uh, balance uh, in the Indian Ocean because it was a single uh, steam-powered gunboat called the Nemesis, which essentially decided the opium war, which is crucial, you know, to uh, the emergence of Chinese history. I mean, the British fought the opium war because the Chinese were trying uh, to keep opium uh, out of China. And through the opium war, Britain essentially forced China to uh, continue taking this uh, this drug, which was immensely valuable uh, for Britain. So, uh, you know, I, I absolutely, I mean, fossil fuels played a very major part in, uh, in deciding the structure. Fossil fuels are essentially what made it possible for the West to gain complete dominance over the rest of the world. And uh, that is one of the reasons why fossil fuels are proving to be so hard to displace. Because, uh, you know, they completely underlie the structure of Western power. The Pentagon is today the single largest consume, uh, emitter of greenhouse gases in the world. You know, I mean, it's, it accounts for maybe 20% uh, of the United States' uh, greenhouse gas emissions. But these emissions are never discussed because of the, during the Kyoto Protocol, the uh, United States... Uh, uh, you know, forced in a clause which uh, exempted uh, defense-related emissions. Actually, we don't even know how much of global emissions comes from defense-related activities because uh, so much of, let's say, uh, defense production is also responsible for the greenhouse gas emissions. But none of this is actually accounted. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Have you ever bought something, owned something that really inspired you to up your game? A tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out? I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car include dynamic sky panorama glass roof, front row massaging seats, you know you want that. Available 33-inch all-terrain tires, which you will want when you check out the multi-terrain select. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. We're all drinking more water these days, and we're all concerned that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. That's why it's worth checking out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no insulation or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, you know, those forever chemicals, in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water. AquaTrue has water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher-capacity under-sink options. Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and many, many others. The filters are affordable and long-lasting, and they do not need changing every two or three months like so many others. They last from six months to up to two years. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water less than three cents a bottle. Plus, you won't be buying bottled water and it'll save the environment from tons of single-use plastic waste. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and makes a great gift. Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bittman receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to AquaTrue.com, that's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com, and enter code Bittman at checkout. For 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier, go to AquaTrue.com and use the promo code Bitman, B-I-T-T-M-A-N. Uh, 
I want to go back to the book for a second. You write that the nutmegs travels and its strange career perfectly illustrate the loss of meaning that is produced by the vision of world as resource. You said this before. To see the world in this way requires not just the physical subjugation of people and territory, but also a specific idea of conquest as a process of extraction. I wanted to say and ask that we humans, um, at least recently, have treated nature as if it exists only for us to use for our own purposes rather than allowing it to have purpose and meaning of its own design. Uh, The colonialists obviously conquered, stole land and property. But is this the source of our disrespect for nature, or does it go back further than that? I think it's a very important part of that, uh, you know, of the contempt for nature that arises uh, within modernity. Because think about it, you know, the nutmeg, had been traded uh, around uh, the so-called known world uh, since antiquity. You know, um, it was known uh, to the Greeks. Uh, it was known in China uh, for for millenniums. But traders from across the Indian Ocean would make this very long and dangerous journey, uh, you know, to the Banda Islands uh, to acquire this uh, to acquire this spice. Now, what happens, uh, you know, they could easily have uh, taken the tree away and planted it elsewhere uh, because many of them lived on the Banda Islands for a long time. They could have taken, you know, nutmeg seeds, I mean, and planted planted them in other parts of the world. And they, would, they wouldn't have had to make these long journeys, but they never did that, uh, you know. And why was that? If you think about it, it's because... Nutmegs weren't nutmegs unless they were from the Banda Islands. Just as Bordeaux wine isn't Bordeaux wine unless it's from Bordeaux and unless it's made by the people who live there, who have this connection between uh, the wine and the, ter- and the terroir, uh, you know. So within Europe, uh, they certainly recognized uh, um, these sorts of connections. I mean, you know, the Dutch could just as well have gone off to um, gone off to Bordeaux, uh, you know, and uh, I killed all the all, all the people there. <laughs> wouldn't have <laughs> been know? as easy though. <laughs> it wouldn't have been that easy, but the Dutch were completely dominant, uh, you know, in the 17th century. But uh, you know, uh, they thought it was okay to go and do this in the Banda Islands. So it's a it's a it's an intersection of several things. And I think this whole mentality actually emerges uh, in the conquest of the Americas, uh, where elite European men, especially, uh, just saw that they could just devastate these entire populations and grab their land. And that was when they began to think that they were the undisputed masters of the world. Everybody else was uh, was essentially their, their resource. That's what the, when they also begin to transport uh, millions of uh, Africans to the Americas and so on. So uh, this sense of mastery, I think, arises first out of the conquest of human beings, you know, the conquest and decimation of human beings. And then it's translated to, uh, uh, to what we call nature, if you like, or to the environment. Do you feel that there was any deeper respect for nature then versus now, or is it just a matter of how big the population has become that's wreaking havoc on climate? 
There was, I think, um, but there was a, a much greater respect. I mean, I remember even in my childhood, you know, I mean, the way that we, uh, that I was brought up, you know, uh, we treated, uh, we were brought up to regard certain things as, uh, uh, you know, uh, with tremendous respect. I mean, for for example, for rice, there were so many rituals for how uh, you dealt with rice. You couldn't, you couldn't spill it, uh, you couldn't... Uh, you couldn't waste it. It was considered like a, inviting a curse upon yourself if you wasted rice. And you know, obviously, these uh, these traditions develop over over time. But all of that is gone now. Uh, you know, this is one of the most striking things I see that the younger generation of Indians uh, really is just as wasteful. Uh, you know, as well, I should say, middle class Indians uh, as people in the West. Wow. Yeah, this is a serious conversation. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth, especially about your own work, but in a way, Nutmeg's Curse seems to expand on the theme of your book, The Great Derangement, in which I think better for you to speak about this than me, but I'm trying to lead you here. I think that you argue that there's been a general failing of literature, of especially European literature a great deal of which obviously is the comprises the canon that it ignored bigger issues um, not only climate change recently but colonialism racism etc in favor of personal issues like crises of conscience individual fortunes and so on when you think of 19th and 20th century literature you don't think, for the most part, about the biggest issues being addressed. You think about the biggest issues being ignored, in a way. And yeah. I wonder if you can speak about this and if you can speak a little bit about whether that's changing, at least in regard to the climate crisis. Sure. Uh, I would say that the seeds for ignoring these issues were, uh, were sown in the 19th century. But I think it took a... It took a long time for this to become uh, hegemonic. I mean, if you think of uh, Moby Dick, a novel which I greatly admire, uh, I mean, Moby Dick is really about a non-human protagonist. You know, uh, the whale has int intentionality; it has intelligence, and uh, you know, Melville saw the whale in that way, and he was able to find a huge readership. Uh, if anyone wrote in that vein today. Uh, they would be regarded as writing fantasy or, mm -hmm. you know, writing children's literature. Similarly, I think uh, John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath is very much uh, a novel that addresses, uh, you know, climate, if you like. I mean, if you look at the very short first chapter, it's actually a model of climate writing, you know. Uh, it just deals with, uh, uh, you know, the weather that creates this disaster uh, in the Dust Bowl. I think it's really, actually, it's very ironic. I think it's only since the 1990s, just as the climate crisis was beginning uh, to accelerate, uh, that all uh, that literature became focused almost entirely on identity issues, so that people who wrote about other things were automatically marginalized as uh, you know writing science fiction or fantasy or something. And I think that is the real catastrophe. Uh, you know that just as the problem was becoming more urgent. All our systems were pushing us uh, to not look at them. You know, there was first the denialism promoted by energy corporations. Then there was the Washington consensus, 
you know, which just basically was buy, 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 consume, 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 you know. There was this enormous sort of uh, emphasis on growing GDP. I mean, for no particular purpose, it was just, you know, this sort of growth mantra. And all of that is reflected uh, in the literature that starts being produced around about the 1990s. And that literature, a lot of it is completely complicit, you know, with the uh, neoliberal, neoliberal dynamics that, uh, you know, have given us this, uh, this enormous problem. But I think things have begun to change. Uh, and I think it's since about 2018 that I see a real sort of big change uh, in, in this more and more young writers and more and more writers of all kinds are addressing these issues now. It's, um, you know, not a moment too, too soon. What are some of the suggestions that you have that you think would make the biggest difference? Where do we go from here in terms of your opinion? Well, one thing, of course, is that uh, literature and writing it's almost all produced uh, in cities. And uh, a lot of city people have very little understanding of the world around them. But it's not just city people. You know, uh, I was invited to do, a, uh, to do some talks at, uh, the, uh, uh, at a university in uh, Indiana, Bloomington, Indiana, you know, which was uh, historically a big agricultural school. And I remember uh, talking to a very large group of uh, students and I asked them, uh, you know, how many of them were from uh, an agricultural or rural background? And I would say about 90% of them raised their hands. And then I asked them, uh, I said, uh, how many of you will go back, uh, you know, to your farms or to the land? And uh, the answer was precisely zero. They've grown up on a steady diet of watching films like Friends, you know, series like Friends and so on. And the entire imaginative universe is now uh, so fixated uh, upon, uh, you know, trying to live those kinds of lives. So it's a very strange thing that I think uh, in the West, uh, native-born populations have completely lost any kind of um, uh, connection with, uh, I mean, whatever connection they may once have had with the world around them, uh, it's largely gone, except for small numbers of people, especially I think uh, winemakers and so on, do retain uh, some of those connections. But I think what interests me in these issues is actually a love of all the bounty of the earth. You know, I love good wine. I love good food. Uh, I, I, I love to cook. I mean, I've cooked for my family for 35 years, uh, you know, and it's... Uh, it's created sort of lasting uh, impacts on my children uh, who also have a, I mean, it wasn't easy, as you know, to make uh, American teenagers uh, eat complicated food, uh, but uh, they grow used to it and now they miss it. And they, you know, it's not just food even. I mean, sitting around the dinner table, making a ritual out of that, it creates conviviality and it creates uh, situations of conviviality which become then, uh, you know, memories of uh, memories of home, memories of family. And I think this is something that has been so catastrophically lost, uh, especially in America. It lingers, uh, I would say, in Italy, Spain, France. But uh, in America, you know, it always amazes me. Uh, people 
I won't sit down to eat. They'll walk down the street eating. Perfect segue, because we did want to talk about cooking a little bit. <laughs> anyway, what kind of food you like to cook? Me? Yeah. Well, I've cooked a lot from your books, for example. Uh, uh, and uh, Flattering. I like to cook uh, all kinds of food, you know. Um, uh, not Indian food quite so much, because it's very labor-intensive. And, uh, you know... <laughs> It takes a lot of work. So I only cook Indian food on uh, sort of like special occasions sometimes, but really not even then. I only cook it because if people come uh, to dinner at my house, they expect to eat Indian food somehow. And it's a great asset, you know, because uh, no one turns down uh, an invitation to an Indian meal somehow. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, but uh, usually for everyday cooking, you know, I cook uh, much same food, but I had... Uh, there were certain uh, sort of family staples, uh, you know, that uh, that we had uh, for the for the kids when they were growing up. Uh, there was a wonderful uh, salmon recipe from Joel, uh, you know, Robuchon. Sounds very complicated, but once you get uh, once you start uh, making it, as you know, you learn to do it. Uh, 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 there were a couple of uh, recipes from Greg Kuntz. Uh, mm. So you know, so th- we had our family favorites. Uh, you know, which uh, we made over and over again. I love also Indonesian food, which is actually, uh, you know, in many ways easier to cook than uh, Indian and uh, less kind of labor intensive. But I also have an enormous fondness for Sichuan food, you know, because my approach to food is maximum flavor, minimal labor. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And Sichuan food, if you if you have a few sort of condiments, you know, you can produce incredibly tasty food uh, with very little uh, investment of labor. That's something I really appreciate. And Fushia Dunlop's books are just wonderful. I'm sure you know her. I love her, book. her books. They're so great. Yeah. Mine are stained with all kinds of chili oil. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I love her books. And I actually met her in Shanghai. We had a wonderful meal some years ago. I love her books. I love Naomi Duguid's books. Uh, do you know her, her work? I don't. I do, yeah. Oh, they're wonderful. Uh, you know, and she has a wonderful book of rice cookery, uh, which taught me how to make Persian rice. And that was a great family favorite. Uh, to this day, the kids crave it. Okay, last question. Sure. What did you have for dinner last night? Ah, I, uh, I was visiting actually an, uh, an Indian film star who happens to be passing through New York, a very famous film star, and uh, he just ordered in uh, Chinese takeout. <laughs> Chinese takeout is very popular <laughs> in India. Fabulous conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. As you see, there's no way that we can't give you a nutmeg forward recipe today. Plus, it's fall, and what better time to enjoy this warm, complex spice that has been the source of so much turmoil that you will find out about when you read Nutmeg's Curse, but have heard about in today's interview. So uh, the, here's the recipe, and it's uh, we're calling it Nutmeg Scented Pound Cake. I'll read the ingredients first. Half a pound of butter, that's two sticks, softened, plus more for greasing the pan. Two cups of cake flour or all-purpose flour, though cake flour is better. If you don't have cake flour, you could use one and a half cups of all-purpose flour and a half a cup of cornstarch. One and a half teaspoons baking powder, half a teaspoon salt, 
some freshly grated nutmeg. Uh, let's say a quarter of a teaspoon is a lot, actually. So I would say a quarter of a teaspoon freshly grated nutmeg, a cup of sugar, five eggs, and two teaspoons vanilla extract. Gather all of that, heat the oven to 325, grease a 9 by 5 inch loaf pan with some butter, and then stir together the flour, baking powder, salt, and the nutmeg uh, in a medium bowl. In a separate bowl, use an electric mixer to cream the butter until it's smooth. Add three quarters of a cup of the sugar and then beat it until it's well blended. Then add the remaining sugar. Beat that until the mixture is light and fluffy. Beat in the eggs one at a time. If you have a standing mixer, this is obviously good here. Add the vanilla and beat until well blended. And then as gently as you can, stir in the dry ingredients by hand just until the mixture is pretty smooth and everything is incorporated. Don't get obsessive about it. Transfer that batter to the pan, smooth out the top with a rubber spatula, and bake until a toothpick inserted in the center comes out clean. It's about an hour. Could be 50 minutes, could be 70 minutes. Let the cake cool in the pan for 5 to 10 minutes, and then uh, run a knife around the edge to remove the cake from the pan. Set it upright on a wire rack to finish cooling and then serve at room temperature as you would any pound cake. You'll enjoy that. An amazing interview, I thought, and want to thank, of course, Amitav and Melissa for their time and Amitav for his wisdom and brilliant words. If you can't tell, I'm fanning him. You can follow him on Instagram at A-M-I-T-A-V underscore G-H-O-S-H-1. And on Twitter at G-H-O-S-H-A-M-I-T-A-V. The Nutmeg's Curse, highly recommended, is out now. Thanks, too, to Kate Bittman, our producer, and to Davis Lloyd, our engineer. We'll see you again next week when we will have somebody awesome. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.